0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. We've talked about the importance of autistics being part of autism research teams several times here on Autism Stories, but how much progress have we actually made in this area and how far do we still need to go? Zach Williams joins this episode to discuss this as well as his research on sound sensitivity and what psychiatrists need to learn about treating autistic patients. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Zach, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: No, oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I wanted to start off and learn, uh, where does your story in the autistic community begin?
1: It began a long time ago. So I was actually diagnosed as a young child. I was diagnosed at the age of four. So I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and my mother, she sort of knew something was off when when I was a little infant. I had a lot of different developmental milestones. I was actually, I was walking late, but talking early. I was speaking in full sentences before I was actually walking, uh, which was very strange. This, I had, you know, other delayed motor milestones, different things. And so my aunt, who happened to be a speech language pathologist came over one day and was like, Uh, oh, Valerie, you should probably have Zach checked out um, for autism or Asperger's at the time was what she was thinking. And so it, this was the late nineties. It wasn't the most progressive time. You know, Asperger's was still a relatively new diagnosis, but they, they took me originally to a child neurologist. He evaluated me. I was about three at the time. I was like, ah, oh, this kid is, you know, maybe something, but let's watch and wait. My mom was not uh, terribly okay with that. So she just went and got a second opinion. I went to the California regional center. California has this this lovely developmental disability service where they do a bunch of you know publicly funded autism diagnoses for young children um and there i ended up getting my my diagnosis eventually after like a school evaluation a you know, parent interview all sorts of things as sort of gold standard treatment or not treatment the gold standard the ados the uh, adi those sorts of um interviews and observational measures weren't really standard at the time as they really weren't brought into the diagnostic fold yet but nevertheless i, I actually have my paperwork from back in the day and read it. I mean, really was quite the like slam dunk diagnosis if you read through it. I mean, they did quite a thorough job. And I actually happened to meet the clinician who diagnosed me later in life, who's now retired, but was a lovely uh, psychologist, but Dr. Bland, and it's great to go full circle and and meet her. Uh, But anyway, you know, sort of been in in the community for a while now and, you know, sort of growing up, you know, being autistic and sort of my mom was very active in this this space you know having a newly diagnosed kid who was very young and my mom actually was recently retired at the time she was an older parent had recently sold her business and Ed was a fairly young retired parent but had a lot of time on her hands to now devote to her child with a developmental disability so she joined the parent support group in town decided to learn everything she possibly could about autism and actually i think she really glommed onto the writings on uh, this is like speaker circuit of Tony Atwood, who at the time was, you know, sort of the big expert on Asperger's syndrome and who was very actually progressive for the time, had a lot of things to say about being, uh, you know, attuning to the, the wants and needs of the autistic person, really being neurodiversity affirmative before there was language to say neurodiversity affirmative. And I think this was this was lovely because, I you know, in again the late 90s, there was a lot of, I think, really toxic ideology about how you should, you know, grieve your autistic child and like, you know, limit them and, and all that. And that, that just wasn't the way I was raised. So, I, you know, I think I had a, a lovely upbringing in, in this community that could have been much worse. So, you know, here in kind of you know, progressive liberal snowflakes, Southern California, I had a, a great way of, of being autistic and, and thriving and it certainly didn't help that i achieved a lot academically i was cognitively okay and you know was put into gifted classes and things but I, I got a lot of support along the way i mean certainly not to say that i didn't have challenges i you know had an iep for a bit and uh the school psychologist had creative differences they parted ways and my mom just decided to take things on herself having lots of time and resources, just kind of took me private and did the services there, which was lovely. And, you know, we are glad that I had the privilege to do that.
0: So, you know, kind of present day, um, you're a graduate of Yale and you're currently at Vanderbilt um, as a PhD candidate. A study you're involved in right now is making me think about something that I've been thinking so much about lately, and that is sound sensitivity. Your study at Vanderbilt's looking at sound sensitivity and mental health in autistic and non-autistic adults. What are, what are you hoping to learn from this study?
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is this is my dissertation study that I'm doing, and it's looking at it is a, a trans diagnostic study of, of sound sensitivity. I mean, I'm really, you know my work is is primarily in autism, but actually the the work that I'm doing in this project, it goes beyond autism, really because what' I've, I've learned in studying sound sensitivity in autism is that it's not that unique to autism. There are a lot of non-autistic people who are are just as sound sensitive, sometimes more than autistic people, and and in very similar ways. So what we're really interested in is figuring out how to best characterize this. You know, there's a lot of research out there that says, essentially, sound sensitivity exists. You know, a lot of autistic people are sound sensitive. But beyond that, there's not much. It's not very good at saying, what are the different kinds of sound sensitivity? What do we do about it? What are the correlates of sound sensitivity? Like, what, is, what does this condition mean in the brain? What is it psychologically? How do we characterize it? So beyond just giving us things like prevalence numbers, there's not a lot to do. If you're a clinician who's like, yep, you're sound sensitive, then beyond that, they, you, can, you can't do much besides describe it. And so it's it's very frustrating, not only for for the clinicians who see this all the time, but for for the people who actually suffer with it. And I say suffer with it for a reason, because this is this is genuinely a part of autism that I think a lot of autistic people would love to just wake up and not have. Um, this you know I think you know in in autism research a lot of us talk not wanting to be treated or cured, but in this case the the sound sensitivity, a lot of sort of sensory sensitivities are, are things that people could genuinely live without. And in a lot of ways, I think this is something that the medical model is appropriate for because it really is very impairing for some folks and could use some true like medical treatments. And so I think in order to get there, what we need is a better framework for addressing it. One thing that is you know, kind of the main goal here is understanding of this big category that we have for sound sensitivity, like what lies beneath that. There are, from just the literature that we've already got, we know people are sound sensitive for different reasons. Some people find some sounds too loud. Some people find very specific sounds to be extremely annoying or anger-inducing or disgusting, this condition called musophonia. Some people have anxiety reactions to sounds that are like a specific phobia of sounds called phonophobia. And so, you know, these different sound sensitivity conditions might be different in terms of their psychological correlates or their their brain correlates and we don't really know i mean there hasn't actually been much research to show that people with different sound sensitivity conditions are, are different anyway people haven't really compared them at all and so even just looking at what kind of sound sensitivity autistic people have it's all just been lumped together into like are autistic people sound sensitive yes or no it's really basic in that sense that it kind of needs to go to ground zero and say like you know what is this descriptive thing of sound sensitivity but it's it's doing that on a very large scale and across diagnostic categories by looking at both the autistic and non-autistic people and we we were lucky to get a pretty large grant from the musophonia research foundation to to do that and so i'm hoping that it'll be fairly impactful and, and foundational within the field to at least start research that would bring us closer to things like you know, actually giving us interventions, giving us diagnostic tools, and, and moving toward, you know, real clinically meaningful things for, you know, people who are suffering from these things right now.
0: It's interesting to me because the idea of sound and hearing are not like new concepts to our society, but yet there's been so little research done in, in this area.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true. I think What has been the issue, and for a lot of people, is that it, for the longest time, has been on preventing things like hearing loss, right? I mean, when when you look at the funders who are in the hearing space, all of that money goes to hearing and communication and all of that... Is really on people who are are losing their hearing. Some of it is on other hearing conditions like tinnitus, and there are actually kinds of sound sensitivity like hyperacusis that go along with tinnitus. But there's a very very small amount of money going into hyperacusis. It's also a pretty limited area of research, and and something that you know is is probably just as understudied as this kind of sound sensitivity that goes along with, with autism. I would say that, really, when you look at this, it's it's just an area that has, for its entire history, really been understudied, underutilized, and despite all of the people complaining of this. Because, you know, for one thing, I you know, there is just less urgency for a lot of these complaints. If someone comes in, let's say, and they have a sound sensitivity syndrome, and they're also Suicidal, right? I mean, you know, you need to treat their their depression, their suicide, whatever. You know, that might take precedence. Nevertheless, I mean, those things have clear treatment. Sometimes there might be, you know, there's just more of a pathway. There's more knowledge around it because we have that research infrastructure. It doesn't mean that these other things aren't affecting their life. And the other thing is, the other thing might be much more chronic. The sound sensitivity. It might still affect people's daily lives. It's not a zero sum game. We can't put nothing else into sound sensitivity research. And there are seriously people who have no other problems other than their sound sensitivity who clearly could benefit quite a lot from these sorts of things. And so, you know, I think that in this case, it it really does benefit a lot of people to to do research on this. And it can improve a lot of lives, especially within the autistic community, but also in, in just other neurodivergent communities. You have no idea the amount of people who I have just been recruiting people with like flyers about sound sensitivity for the largest part. I mean, also recruiting autistic adults, but I, I have gotten a ton of people with ADHD coming into the study for no fault of others. It's just like, are you sensitive to sound? And so that population is clearly very affected by sound and you know, could benefit quite a lot. Hmm.
0: I was gonna ask, are you looking for participants for this study? And if so, how can people find more information about it, Zach?
1: Yeah, definitely let me just, uh, we are definitely looking for participants. So it is an in-person study. So you could be a, within at least driving distance to Nashville. So if for folks who are interested, you know, you need to come to Nashville 2 in-person visits. There are some online questionnaires too, but like everyone who participates needs to actually come to the lab and get some in-person testing. But assuming you are interested in that, if you want to be a part of the study, uh, we have an eligibility questionnaire you can fill out And I can actually put the link into, or I can give that to Doug to put into the podcast information. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be great if folks are are interested in that. We'll probably be recruiting people through the end of 2023, roughly. So yeah, no, definitely interested in um, getting more participants, especially autistic and other neurodivision people who are and aren't uh, sensitive to sound and especially men actually we are interestingly enough uh, so far at least the uh, the participants have been about 80 percent female it seems like we're getting a lot more or females than males that tends to be the case for research signups anyway just like females tend to have a a higher incidence of participating in research but also i think they have a higher incidence of sound sensitivity at least that has been the, the case in some of the survey studies that i've done as well on larger scale
0: now, also at uh, Vanderbilt, from what I understand, you're training to be a psychiatrist. It seems often that psychiatrists don't seem to understand uh, how to best support the needs of autistics. So what would you say are some common things uh, you would hope or that you think that psychiatrists may overlook or not be aware of when treating a patient that is autistic?
1: No, that's a that's a great question, Doug. And and I think what really is the issue here is it is a training issue. And so this is this is something I'm very passionate about because I, I want to be an adult psychiatrist and not a child psychiatrist and in go into autism, which is something that not a lot of people do. If you look at actually psychiatric training programs out there you know most of the autism specialists out there are our child and adolescent specialists and it's not to say that that's you know a bad thing it's just for the for whatever reason people have put their money into you know child and adolescent programs and that's where the autism specialty has been because autism is identified pretty early in most cases and in that sense people have started you know putting the care in the child units but nevertheless autistic children turn into autistic adults some of those autistic adults are not identified until in adulthood and those autistic adults still need care and so adult psychiatrists still need to be able to take care of autistic adults and the problem of course is that I think in adult psychiatric training, there is really no infrastructure to do that. We don't have adult autism clinics at most places. And so even at somewhere like Vanderbilt, there, there is no devoted adult autism clinic we treat our autistic adults out of our child and adolescent psychiatry department where our, you know, autism specialists who are, you know, child and adolescent specialists who see adults too will treat autistic adults. Now, I mean, again, these people will see autistic people across the lifespan and they're plenty good to see adults. But again, I think the fact that there are not autistic adult specialists training the adult specialists leads to the problem. So when you have adult providers who have gone through their entire training without really getting a good clinical background and seeing autistic adults, they just don't know how to manage autistic adults. And so this leads to kind of this, this vicious cycle where the average adult psychiatrist just doesn't have the the actual clinical background from their training to feel confident seeing autistic adults and this is this is the same for most mental health providers be they therapists or clinical psychologists unless they have specialty autism training from a few different clinical programs they actually have these sorts of like adult autism clinics or lifespan autism clinics then they probably don't actually have very much training in this at all and they're flying by the seat of their pants or maybe they had some clinical you know, experience working with autistic adults. They have personal experience working with autistic adults. Either way, I, I mean, you know, there are obviously ways to accrue this kind of experience through your own clinical practice or your life experience. But nevertheless, I mean, it's it's hard to come by because it's not ingrained in most training programs. With all of that being said, I think we really do have a lack of training here, and so I just wanted to put that out there for the you know people lamenting, oh, well, you know, psychiatrists don't understand the autistic people, and I think this is not necessarily anything but a systemic problem. And this, this needs to change. This is something I hope to change. And in fact, if I, you know, like (laughs) if someone finds this 20 years down the line, I really hope that I can look back on this and say that I have done something in my career to make this like training gap, uh, you know, closed in some way, because I I really hope that that is, is something that I can, I can work on. But beyond that, I think that, In general it it is notable that adult psychiatrists don't feel comfortable treating autistic patients again because of this lack of training however i think there are oftentimes a few things that are pretty easy to do when it comes to taking care of autistic patients that uh, you know relatively speaking are easy to implement for one in general uh, an adult psychiatrist just needs to figure out what you know services or accommodations can best get the autistic person to feel comfortable in the appointment in the sense that a lot of standard ways of going about the psychiatric appointment are going to be difficult for an autistic person. Not to say that autistic people can't do normal therapy or normal treatment or that it won't work for autistic people. That's essentially not true. There are plenty of people who will do just fine with the way things are, but there are some people, a you know, sizable minority, who will not. And so in that case... You will have to adapt and for those people the standard of care is going to feel very subpar and i think in those cases oftentimes the difference will be adapting the communication between the provider and the patient sometimes it's as simple as just figuring out what kinds of ways the patient is communicating that are are atypical or different. Sometimes people are having a really hard time communicating their emotions because they just don't feel them the same way. Sometimes people are just having a really hard time in their interpersonal relationships and that's bleeding into all sorts of other things. Sometimes there are just, you know, very like different ways of living one's life that have, you know, the person has very different goals. And so the way to like make a depressed person get out of that depression is not going to be the same way as going to, you know, have those same recommendations for a neurotypical person. And so, and just thinking about this kind of thing, you have to consider a person in their context of their autism and like individualize that clearly, you know, within the context of medication management, this might be a little bit harder because the, you know, that context may be, you know, more biological and harder to interpret for a given person. But in terms of, like, the standard for a clinician in med management, the the kind of clinical lore, at least, not that there's, like, good evidence to back this up, is that autistic people tend to either do really well with much higher or much lower doses of standard psychiatric medications. And so, again, not to say that there is any good evidence of that. In the literature but people do seem to say that there is at least somewhat of a higher side effect burden of some of these medications in I know, standard clinical trials to say that lower doses might be more effective could be that just like the lower doses are more tolerable for people and that might be the more optimal dose for for some versus then other people aren't feeling them and so uh, you know it might take to a higher dose to actually get to an effect that seems subjectively like it's working but you know again i think there's a real gap in evidence because we have not a lot of specialists and so what again it's going to really take people doing this kind of work and systematically investigating it to to really know what works and for whom so because it's such an untouched area of science we we really need to to move forward in terms of systematic investigation for us to to really get good recommendations for practice again something i'm hoping to do over the course of my career
0: now research is 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 critical and with autism research a lot of times i've you know i think it's lacking just because autistic researchers are not involved and so i was really excited to talk to you because you're the chair of the autistic researchers committee for the international society for autism research and i believe this is the first organized and recognized effort to Directly involved autistic researchers in contributing to the course of autism research. So the committee, I guess, is fairly new. It was, it was formed in two thousand twenty. What would you say you're most proud of regarding your committee's work up to this point?
1: Well, I think that it, as far as the the INSAR is concerned, it, it's a really great accomplishment to just be able to to have a seat at the table. I'm I'm very excited. So you know, INSAR itself is the the premier autism research professional organization so this is a this is a very big deal that you know they have decided to put these resources behind having a group of autistic researchers for you know in perpetuity be a part of this organization you know who is the driving force of autism research and you know we are now helping to plan the annual conference and make it more accessible and always you know going to the board meetings and you know, the business meeting and, and actually, you know, making key decisions about things. You know, we're certainly not the, we're just a committee. You know, we are not the board, so we, we don't necessarily have all of the decision-making power, but I think that we we can still do a lot to help influence this society for good. And so it's it's really exciting. As far as like the single biggest thing that we've done, I would say that that is an initiative that i actually spearheaded that was called the iccr or the insar uh, community collaborator requests so it's been going for about a year now and it's actually a it's a pretty simple setup but what it is is it's a an extension of what the insar did as their like job board their career center And it is a way for researchers to put out a job posting for community collaborators. Essentially, you can, as a researcher, say, "Okay, I want to do a participatory study, meaning that I want to collaborate with autistic people. Or, for instance, another sort of stakeholder group like a family member or caregiver, if that's appropriate for the study that I'm doing are a uh, sibling or you know maybe even clinicians if you know those are the stakeholders you're interested in working with and say hey you know i want to have these people on my research team they're you know they don't have to be academics they can be lay people but i i need a you know some sort of stakeholder to inform my research because that is going to make my research process better. And you can do this at any point in the research study. And so you post this as a job. you You can look for this person because not all researchers know where to find these people. Sure, you can recruit participants, but this is a qualitatively different thing, right? You're recruiting a member of your research team who just happens to be a community member. And we, we noticed this need as we were actually setting up our, our committee, we were talking about the merits of participatory research, and a lot of researchers are quite excited about this, and it's becoming more popular in the field. But, uh, you know, one of the questions that keeps coming up is like, this is great, but how do we do it? You know, the implementation barriers are, are there. And, and one of the biggest things is, you know, they're just like finding any other member of a team, it's hard to find the right fit for a community collaborator, especially because, you know, finding the right person for a job like, you know, being a a researcher is difficult, especially if that person is a layperson who doesn't necessarily have a background in research. And so then it's great to be able to tap this untapped potential of kind of the entire autism community, really, to say, hey, if, you know, someone out there is interested in this, you know, this could be a virtual job, it could be a, you know, a volunteer position, you can do it for pay, for not for pay, you can put them on, you know, as an author on the paper, if they're interested in that, you know, it can be any sort of arrangement that the the researcher wants to offer. We don't have any restrictions on that. It's just, you know, you can offer whatever you'd like, it's just a, a posting board, essentially. But it allows people to have that freedom to make those arrangements. Instar doesn't really get in the way of that. We just let people put that up, put their contact information, and then people are able to answer those posts. By doing that, we really are just giving people that single location to get those, uh, those postings out there, get people who are interested in participating as not as participants but as co-researchers in you know, a place to look for those posts and then it gives people a a, the ability to really improve the participatory research process we're hoping that over time this really just improves the number of participatory research studies and with it the quality of autism research as a whole we've definitely seen this happen so far i mean we've not gotten a ton and ton of uh postings probably about a dozen in the last year but the posts have largely been answered people have gotten collaborators through this i mean it's made some successful collaborations happen. And so I think we're just now working on advertising it, getting the word out there about this thing, getting more researchers to use it, uh, you know, getting it more populated. You know, the, the problem to me right now is that there aren't enough studies out there <laughs> at a time and there aren't enough seeing the studies that that they exist. It's not in the most uh, easy to find place on the INSAR website, though you can get to it from the homepage if you go to autisminsar, it's autism-insar.org, it's and then you go to resources and ICCR, then there's a page about the ICCR that gives you all sorts of information there about it. So there you can read all about it. There are guides about how to make posts, how to look at the posts, try to make this as accessible as possible for people with uh, instructions about how to do things. But please, if you do actually have more um, ideas about how to improve this process, I mean, I have heard from several folks that it is kind of opaque still. And the INSAR website staff have given me some limitations, unfortunately, but I am always looking for ways to improve this. So please do let me know. I think we're really excited to just, you know, have this out there and get more people involved, so.
0: I always love hearing about successful collaborations. I'm wondering, though, about what you just kind of said about there's just not enough studies out there. So just so I can understand, there's not enough autism studies out there?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's not that there aren't enough studies in existence, but it's there aren't enough studies posted to the ICCR at a given time. So, I mean, there have been a couple times, for instance, where I've given a talk on the ICCR and I wanted to demonstrate like how to go and look for the ICCR posts that are currently out there and I go and do it and there isn't anything posted at the time, which is a real bummer because then I have to go to the, somewhere else on the career center and use a different post as a sample or something like that. And so, I mean, my, my real goal would just be to have something available for people to look through at all times. And so one of the issues is that the posts are actually time limited. So if you do put a post on there, it gets automatically deleted after 30, 60 or 90 days based on what you select. Mm -hmm. And apparently this is not something that the NSAR staff can change, or at least there's a web feature like requests to put something in for longer. Anyway, there's like some technical reasons that this is, you know, all that exists right now. And I am currently working on changing that. (laughs) So that is one reason that the the board is, is, you know, constantly cleared. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, there are no studies available for people, but it, you know, it kind of cleans itself. And so when people look at it, it doesn't mean that no one is necessarily looking, but people's posts might be taken down without them noticing.
0: So it sounds like technical and marketing uh, I- issues is is where we're at.
1: Yes, exactly. There are there are lots of logistical issues that you always get in the way of uh, you know a good idea, and so um, really you know would love to have more um, time to, to work on this, but unfortunately, as you know, many side projects with shoestring budgets go. Um, I, you know, this is an, <laughs> one of many things that I do, and I I need to start actually delegating some other folks on the the committee to help me with this. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, this community collaborator project seems to tie in with one of the main priorities of the Autistic Researchers Committee, which is to promote scientists to work with autistic people and other members of the Autism Committee. So where do you think we are in this process um, here early in 2023?
1: So... Again, I think that the the autism research community has made a lot of strides in this direction. I mean, I think you go back as far as 2010 or so, and the idea of having an autistic person on the research team to inform the design of the study was a completely foreign concept. This wasn't happening at all. There were maybe one or two research groups in the world doing this. And now it's not uncommon. I mean, at least people do it at the level of consultation or having a community advisory board or something like that all the time. I mean, it's not necessarily the majority of autism studies, but people are, nevertheless, it's it's a pretty prevalent methodology. I think it could be done in more rigorous ways, and, and like people have said in other venues, it is something that can be done well, it can be done poorly, and there are, are different strategies in order to make it Done, you know, you you can do it it, to varying degrees. Like the amount of actual participation and power sharing can vary. The group Aspire, the Academic Autism Spectrum Partnership in Research and Education out of Portland State, they're run by uh, Christina Nicolaitis and Dora Raymaker, has a great set of guidelines on how best to engage in these sorts of partnerships. We actually have a couple of resources on the ICCR page about how to do this kind of research as well for researchers who are interested in um, improving their participatory research game, as it were. So like a starter pack for participatory autism research and things like that. The Aspire collaboration toolkit with it, which they have put out. There are definitely resources for that as well. But even so, I think that one of the main barriers remains that a lot of researchers just don't feel like they want to take the step from doing non-participatory research to doing participatory research at all because i mean one of the things that's that's tough is that power sharing is sharing power right you you have Mm -hmm. to go from essentially dictating your own research to not and that's difficult for people. And also it takes time. It takes resources. It's uh research is necessarily slower. If your funder wants you to, you know, hit X deadline and, you know, get these milestones done and, and such a. I mean, you have to take that into account when you're planning your grant, when you're planning your study. If you have to, you know, spend the first three or four months of your, you know, funded project getting together your community advisors and Putting together this board and making sure that everybody is on the same page with what the study is even going to do, that's going to slow things down necessarily. If you have to put all of the major decisions of the project to a vote, that's going to slow things down. It's not going to necessarily be worse research, it's going to be slower research. But if time is a priority, that's going to be something that it has costs. Not all researchers want to take those costs. I think that what we have to do is we have to sell them on the benefits, which are, are many. I mean, one thing is just the, the validity aspect of the, the research. You know, a lot of the findings that come out of participatory research are simply more accepted by the community that the, the research is meant to benefit. I mean, the people that autism research is for are arguably autistic people. And so, the you know, we stand to benefit the most from Autism research. And and don't get me wrong, there are certainly things like meta research and you know, research on research methodology and things that are, you know, research for researchers. But at the end of the day, the, the end goal of research is to improve the lives of autistic people. And so at, at the end of the day, you probably want your research to, you know, land well with the community that it's meant to benefit. And how best to do that is usually by having community members on your research team that give it a once over, at least, and help you see with a different set of eyes what that research is going to look like when the community sees it. Because there are really blind spots that academics have. I mean, I, you know, as an academic or someone who has, you know, been academically trained, I write and now speak in academic ease. I, I use big words. I, I mean, I probably have since I was a kid, but I mean, even so, I think that one of the, the biggest problems is that I, I don't use enough layperson friendly language i think that i could do a lot better to communicate my science in a way that folks who are non-scientists could actually digest and one of the best ways to actually get that out to people is to have real lay people sit there and listen to me talk about my science because when their eyes glaze over i know that (laughs) i have done something that says ah yes that is where the the words are you know over their head And so, I mean, the same thing, if you are disseminating your science in a way that, you know, lay people can't understand, then lay people will not consume your science, plain and simple. These are invaluable things for scientists to understand. And, you know, again, these, like, not only does it become more respectful, it becomes more accessible, it becomes more valid. And, you know, we just miss these things because we're so used to just talking to other scientists that we we just don't even realize how important this is to making our science impactful and you know what do we do all of the science for to disseminate it to get other people to care about it so why not put in the extra effort to make other people care
0: and lastly zach how can people learn more about you beyond this interview
1: sure and so i think one of the the best ways for people to do that would probably be to uh follow me on twitter i'm I'm fairly active there and so that would be at uh, Quant, Q-U-A-N-T, psychiatry. And so I, you know, that would be a, a good spot for people to uh, get to see some of my work and other you know, science and advocacy stuff that I do. If you also, I guess, on, on my Twitter, I have a link to my research gates, which is where I put up a lot of my research papers and uh, presentations and things, even things that are behind paywalls that are usually open access on there. If you are interested in, you know, following my work, my, my research gate has pretty much all of it. I'm also, you know, I have a Google Scholar, and Orchid profile. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think I, I do publish a lot of work. I'm happy to, you know, if you are ever, you know, interested in reading any of it and don't have um, access to it, feel free to shoot me an email at Dot. Uh, williams at vanderbilt.edu happy to send you any of it or, or just chat about anything you know always happy to you know talk about any of these things um, really excited to be a part of this and uh you know again it's, it's great to be a part of this community and again yeah so thank you so much for uh for having me this has been such a lovely experience. I'm, I'm really excited to, to share my story and my work with, uh, with the rest of the community.
0: And I would encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter, especially if they're interested in autism research, because you can learn a lot that way. And Zach, I really appreciated learning a little bit more about you and learning more about some research. So thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Doug. Anyway, have a great time.
0: Thanks so much to Zach for the conversation. To learn more about Zach and his research, please check out the links in the podcast description of this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides neurodiversity-affirming support by autistics for autistics through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.